month's NJC podcast features Dr. Ed Latessa, Director and Professor of the School of Criminal Justice at the University of Cincinnati. He's co-author of eight books, including What Works and Doesn't in Reducing Recidivism, Corrections in the Community, and Corrections in America. And he and guest host William Brunson, Director of Special Projects here at NJC, spoke about evidence-based solutions for the criminal justice system. Okay, so uh, Professor Latessa, we hear a lot about evidence-based in the criminal justice field. What does evidence-based really mean? Well, it's important, I think, to understand that there's not a there's no agreed upon definition by academics, but 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 I think what it really means is using uh, empirical evidence uh, to help make better decisions, uh, ranging from you know, placement to 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 conditions to supervision practices, uh, and 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 using that information that that evidence. In a you know in kind of a systematic uh, a systematic way, <clears throat> I, I think there, there historically there's been you know as it, as this has evolved, um, and you think about it from medicine or other fields you know I mean take any field education so what's the research say is the best way to teach uh, children how to read and and there may be hundreds of studies done on that well. You know, researchers like myself sift through those those studies and through techniques such as meta-analysis, we're able to help guide policymakers uh, and give them direction. And so it's very similar in, in, in the field of, of criminal justice, uh, where we look at all the research and we and we try to develop some some guidelines and principles that can help uh, help policymakers make uh, um, better informed decisions. Well, as you know, a lot of judges see new research findings almost every day. How right. can they tell if the empirical evidence they're looking at is valid? Well, that, that's, a, that's a great question. I think, you know, the, the standard, the academic standard is that, you know, that there be peer-reviewed uh uh, studies, that is, studies that have been, you know, examined by other experts and, 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 and give them their, their kind of blessing. Uh, the, the favorite technique today to review research is meta-analysis. And, and, and when you do a meta-analysis, one of the things that researchers take into consideration is the quality of that research. Um, I'm a big advocate of, you know, looking at, at not looking at one study, but looking at, as a, you know, as I've said, the body of research. And, and so if we've got, you know, 50 studies of something and uh, only one of them has shown any effect at all, um, you know, my advice is that I wouldn't go down that road. On the other hand, if we have 50 studies and the vast majority are showing some positive effects, I think we have a little more confidence in in, in taking a look at, at what's going on and, and, and how it's working. Okay. Uh, let me ask you, let me change tax a little bit here. I wanted to ask you a little bit about what the major predictors of criminal behavior are. Okay. Well, uh, again, and this is a good example of of where over the years there have been hundreds and hundreds of studies done, um, but but recently in the last twenty years or so, through 
through sifting through that research, uh, we're able to identify what we consider to be the major risk uh, factors. Uh, that starts includes uh, antisocial and pro-criminal attitudes and values and beliefs, uh, cognitive emotional states, things like rage and anger and defiance and criminal identity. Uh, antisocial attitudes are, are views that are supportive of a criminal lifestyle. So uh, people that have negative expressions about the law or negative expressions about conventional institutions, such as rule, you know, rules and authority, and negative attitudes about their ability to achieve. They, they don't see, uh, you know, legitimate pathways as as um, um, very open to them. Uh, and, and they often have you know, uh, they don't see how their behavior affects others, how it hurts others. Um, and they often minimize and rationalize their behavior. They don't accept responsibility. They blame others. Uh, a second risk factor is, is of course, pro-criminal associates, you know, who you hang around with. But it's, it's not just uh, knowing other, other people that get into trouble. It's not having pro-social people in their life. And I, and I think this is a very important risk factor. You know, we, our mothers all knew it. When we were young, they want us to hang around with good, good kids. Um, and, and, and it's because of the importance of, of modeling and reinforcement, and, and we often emulate others. And so if we hang around with the wrong people, we end up emulating the wrong behavior. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, temperament and, and antisocial personality traits are also uh, what we call a, a risk domain. Um, weak socialization, being impulsive, not thinking before we act, um, being adventurous and pleasure seeking, uh, egocentrism, you know, having being this totally self centered kind of narcissistic of you. Um, you know, having a taste for risk and, and also within this area, things such as weak problem solving and, and lack of coping skills. And so, you know, the, the, these traits that people have, most of them are behavioral, um, often mean that people get into situations and they don't know how to get out of them. Uh, and either they're taking risks they shouldn't take, or they think what they're doing is okay because of this this uh, uh, egocentrism and so forth. Uh, fourth is a history of antisocial behavior, and so you know, starting at a young age in a variety of settings, it can be at school, it can be at home, it can be on the streets. Uh, it translates, of course, into criminal records, getting arrested, um, and, and so forth. Um, the fifth uh, major factor are familiar factors, including kind of family criminality and, and other psychological problems in the family, uh, low levels of affection and caring and cohesiveness. For kids, it can include poor supervision and discipline at home and outright neglect and abuse. And again, if you know if our father was in prison or we have family members in prison, those often are our role models. And and, and so we 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 see these factors as contributing to, to criminal behavior. Sixth is is kind of low levels of personal, educational, vocational, or financial achievement. 
So, you know, lack of education and employment can lead to lower financial means, uh, higher crime neighborhoods, or, of course, trying to trying to increase our finances by illegal means. Um, and, and when we're working or in school, we're also involved in pro-social activities, usually with other pro-social people. So, so lack of, of, of achievement in education and employment uh, often uh, uh, contributes to, to criminal conduct as well. Uh, seventh is uh, low levels of involvement in pro-social leisure activities. When, we, when we're not involved in pro-social activities, we're often interacting in with other antisocial peers and, and have idle time. And, 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 and people end up replacing pro-social behavior with antisocial behavior. And finally, uh, substance abuse of alcohol or drugs. Um, this is this rounds out what we call the major set. Now, now there are other minor risk factors. Um, <clears throat> if you live in a bad neighborhood, for example, it can contribute to risk. Um, but for the most part, these are considered the kind of the major set of risk factors that uh, are driving uh, a great deal of the, of the behavior that we see. Um, in your work, you've researched a lot of criminal justice programs that simply don't work. Can you tell judges about some of your most compelling findings or what w might surprise most judges about programs that they think work but they really don't? Yeah, well, I, I think there's some reasons that many programs don't work. Uh, sometimes it's because they're simply targeting um, uh, areas that are not highly related to criminal behavior. Um, let's take a, one common perception that mental illness is a risk factor for criminal conduct. There's, there's really no evidence that, that it's a, a, a risk factor. Uh, we do see more and more mentally ill people uh, incarcerated in our jails and our prisons, in part because we we don't have the mental health uh, services we used to have, uh, and, and their behavior kind of leads to, you know, the police being involved and so forth. But it's not a major risk factor. And so, but it can be, uh, we're not saying it doesn't need addressed, but it's really a barrier uh, to getting at risk factors. But what ends up happening is we put people in programs that just kind of work on their symptomology and don't work on their on their risk factors. And so they 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 stabilize them but they don't really address their substance use or their their lack of social support, uh family and the other factors that are important. Um sometimes I think judges um put people in programs that be, but they're 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 what I call unidimensional. And, and so it's important, I think, to point out that most higher risk uh, people, people are higher risk, aren't, high, aren't there because they have a risk factor. They're there because they have multiple risk factors. And, and, and so we take someone who has antisocial attitudes and values, gets high all the time, doesn't have a job, hangs around with people just like themselves, have poor problem solving and coping skills, and think what they do is okay, and we put them in a work program, or we put them in a substance abuse program, and we don't get much effect. 
the judge doesn't understand why didn't this program work? Well, it didn't work because that individual has a lot of risk factors that are driving their behavior, and it's unlikely that changing one of them is going to have a, a, a big appreciable effect. So, and then sometimes we just judges send people to programs that you know they're, they're never going to work, you know, because they're targeting what we call non-criminal genetic needs. You know, they're they're making them feel better about themselves, or they're um, you know that they're involved in all kinds of activities, none of which really address their their major risk factors. So there, there's there's a lot of reasons that programs can can uh, not be effective. Let me ask you a little bit about that, and, and it sounds to me like you're talking about some of the risk assessment tools that are that are commonly used. Can you give us a brief insight into what you would look for if you were a judge on uh, on a risk assessment tool that is valid and useful? Okay. Well, that's a, that's a great question. There's there's a lot. You know, there's a long history of using uh, actuarial risk assessment tools. Um, it goes back to the actually 1928 when the first tool was developed for the Illinois Parole Board. They wanted to try to make better decisions. And so they asked researchers to help them uh, identify factors that were related to risk to reoffend. This is really considered the first tool. Uh, it, it, it was based, it's what we call a static instrument. That is, most of the factors that it, that it included were historical in nature. Um, for example, prior record, how many times somebody had been arrested, um, you know, if they were um, uh, ever tried to escape, if they failed probation, you know, those are all uh, risk predictors, but they're, they're, they're what we call static. They're really not amenable to change. Uh, in, the, in the 70s and 80s, we started to see another generation of tools come along. These tools started to include uh, dynamic risk factors, like some of the ones I mentioned, like peers, and substance abuse, and so forth. Today, we're into what really what we call fourth generation assessment tools. These are tools that uh, look at risk factors, both static ones as well as dynamic ones, and they include case plans and 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 also help the the assessor identify risk factors or I'm sorry barriers or assets that the person might have that might either get in the way or help them be successful. So some of the tools that are out there's a lot of tools out there. Uh, the LSI, the Level of Service Inventory, is a widely used assessment tool. Uh, the Ohio Risk Assessment System is used in a number of states now, um, and and there there's a there 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 are quite a few. Compass is another tool that's that's used. These tools are some are proprietary; they cost money. Some of them are not. Uh, most of them require some training. Um, it, you know, risk assessments, like anything else we do, it has to be done well. It has to be valid and reliable. Um, by, by valid, I mean it needs to predict what we want it to predict. And by reliable, I mean mostly inter-rater reliability. So if I have three people assessing the same person, they should all come to the same conclusion. 
They could all be wrong, which means it's reliable but not valid. But if a tool's not done well, we really start to lose confidence in, in the results. And so I would say to any judge that's looking at a risk assessment tool to adopt in, in, their, in, their, in their probation department, make sure it's one that has some data behind it, make sure it's one that the staff are trained on, and, and make sure it's one that when, when that individual standing in front of that judge, he has confidence or she has confidence that the assessment looks like the person standing there. How can these uh, risk assessments reduce bias? Well, and this is a debate. It goes on. But, but let's think about what the alternative is. The alternative is discretion, judgment, intuition, gut feelings. Uh, do we know there's bias in that? Well, of course we do. And the problem is it's, it's hard to remove. When you use an actuarial tool, the goal of the tool is to look at objective risk factors, those factors that have been found across different subgroups to be predictive. For example, hang around with people that get into trouble, you're more likely to get in trouble yourself. I don't care if you're black or white or yellow or green or any, you know, it doesn't really matter. It's a risk factor. And, and, and so, but when you use a, 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 an actuarial tool, the advantage is you can look for bias. You can test for bias. Researchers can, can weed out items that aren't predictive or items that seem to, 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 to be uh, favor one group over the other. And so, you know, actuarial instruments allow us to, to, to eliminate or reduce bias, whereas professional judgment really doesn't. Um, you've done quite a bit of research on drug courts. Um, what separates uh, drug court programs that work from those that don't, in your view? Yeah, well, let me say this. I think at the adult level, most studies show some effect from drug, drug courts. I mean, that research has been going on now for a number of years. A number of meta-analysis have been done. I, I don't think there's any question that taken as a whole, adult drug courts show an effect. That said, there's quite a bit of variation in those studies, and I believe that we can do a lot better with, with adult drug courts. Um, <clears throat> you know, improving them means, um, you know, following some of, the, some of the principles, making sure that we're targeting higher risk individuals and not putting low risk people in drug courts because that can increase their, their failure rate uh, just simply because you're exposing them to high risk people and you're making them do a lot of things that, that might be difficult for anyone to do uh, on a regular basis. I think drug courts have to target many times uh, more than just substance abuse. As I said, many of these individuals, if they're high risk, you know, they have other risk factors. And, and drug courts have to have multimodality kind of interventions. Um, I think they also have to, yeah, a lot of drug courts that I've studied, uh, they, they tend to keep people too long. I think uh, the evidence is that we can we can provide the dosage of treatment in in a shorter period than many drug courts. Uh, most studies show that once they go past a year, effects start to go down. 
So I, I think if, if, you know, judges are running drug courts, they need to take a hard look at at uh, how long it lasts and the intensity and are they targeting the right people. Now, with juvenile drug courts, that's a different matter. We're, we're not seeing positive effects. A number of studies have been coming out, including a big one we did here at the University of Cincinnati. Uh, juvenile drug courts, um, for the most part, are not uh, not effective, and there's a number of reasons for that as well. Uh, some of it simply has to do with the fact that we're targeting younger people, most of whom are smoking marijuana and drinking alcohol and using, a, a, you know, using approaches that really are not going to be very effective with, uh, with those groups. Some judges criticize drug courts because they essentially fold the work of the probation department into the judge's role. Those judges argue that if probation officers were properly educated, judges wouldn't need to fulfill the drug court role. What is your point of view on that argument? Well, that's that's, that's an interesting uh, point. I think most drug courts probation officers are part of the team. Uh, that comprises the drug court, uh, and and I think the probation officers can be effective uh, in helping change behavior, but we've really not trained them very well to do that. But but it is different to have a judge um, take the lead in 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 meeting with uh, uh, someone on a regular basis. Um, probation officers often, while they do have some authority, they often have to go back to the court before there's a, a violation or before some other sanction is imposed. But having a judge both both reinforce that individual on a regular basis, as well as be able to to to, to tell them the things that that. Uh, are important and things that can happen to them. I think that's that's an element that you won't get if you just have a probation officer uh, uh, overseeing. Do you also think it has to do with the attitude of the individual who is overseeing the offender? Uh, meaning, um, I know there's been a lot of research with regard to uh, procedural fairness, the way in which you uh, motivational interviewing, yeah. things along those lines. Do you think that has an impact on the success or failure of the interactions with that individual? Uh, I don't think it's as much attitude as it is skills. There have been some studies of looking at probation and parole officer attitudes. The argument is that, you know, if they're punitive and they're controlling, they're more likely to violate offenders and, and revocate them. Um, most studies don't show that, in part, I think, because a good probation department sets up procedures and policies to review uh, <clears throat> things like revocations and, and, and technical violations and so forth. I think it's, it's, it's really giving probation and parole officers the skills they need. Uh, and, and, and we have a new article we've just written um, <clears throat> um, that, uh, that discusses this issue if you think about most probation and parole officers today, they are trained to be referees. And, and, and what a referee does is enforce the rules. 
They're not there to tell someone they did a good job. They're not there to, to give them reinforcement. They're there to make sure that everything's done uh, according to the rules. We need probation and parole officers to be coaches. Um, coaches teach, coaches reinforce, coaches will sit you if you're not doing the right things, coaches practice. And, and so the challenge is how do we take probation and parole officers and move them from being referees to moving them to be coaches? I think that's the challenge. There's a lot of work going in this area. But, you know, essentially that's what, you know, that's the difference between simply managing risk and reducing risk, right? If we want to manage it, we simply manage the rules. If we want to reduce it, we have to teach people how to behave differently. And so I, I, I think that's the challenge. And, and, of course, that involves changing people's attitudes, probation officers and others, their attitudes about their work. Um, but if we don't give them the skills that they need, changing their attitudes alone probably won't get us very far. Well, there's been some discussion about separating the role of the probation officer from the law enforcement role. Well, you know, a good professional adapts and, and adapts their role. Yes, they do have some law enforcement responsibilities, but they also have responsibilities to, you know, in the broader world, public safety. And so public safety isn't just about enforcing rules. Public safety is about helping someone be successful, showing them what to do. Uh, and, and, and so I don't think no, anyone would argue we're going to totally take this law enforcement out of, of probation or parole supervision. Uh, but on the other hand, if they're true professionals, they understand that that role is more than just enforcing the rules. It's also helping this individual be successful by, by doing what? Teaching them and coaching them on the things they need to learn to stay out of trouble in the future. I know a lot of uh, there's been a lot of recent research on pretrial justice issues. Yeah. Um, why should judges reconsider the use of money bonds? Well, I think the issue with money bonds is one of is one of equity and fairness. We we shouldn't people shouldn't be in, simply held in jail or detention because they don't have the means to get out. Um, that I think is really at the, the, the heart of the issue of money bonds. Um, you know, it, it's a fairness issue. There are people that you know it really ought to be based more on risk and and, and equity. And so, you know, we there are people that need to be held, you know, uh, in detention until their their court hearing. Um, but it shouldn't be simply because they they can't come up with, you know, with the money to to, to get out. Are you surprised that um, judges on on average? are concerned about eliminating the use of money bonds? Well, I, I don't say I'm surprised. I, I think 
you know, I try to put myself in a judge's shoes, and I, I think there's that are risk aversive because you know the last thing they want to see is uh, get up in the morning and read about something in the paper or on the news of somebody that you know was was uh, given a bail or or let out on OR and commits a serious crime. Um, I understand that. But we also have to look at the, you know, at, at, at uh, first of all, there's no way to ever eliminate all risk, you know, that, that, that there's always things we're not going to foresee. Um, but we also have to understand that, you know, we have a constitution to follow. People have a right to fair and reasonable uh, uh, bond or release. And I, I think we have to give judges tools we have risk assessment instruments at pretrial. There's quite a few instruments out there. I think that's one tool. I think we also have to look at, at the police and, and, and try to, are there ways in which the police can start to uh, cite people for, for certain things rather than bring them into the jail? Because once they're brought into the jail, they're not going to be released usually until a, a, a judge agrees to do that. So we put a lot of that onus on the judge, whereas I think we, we probably have to have a system that includes more citations by the police for certain offenses so they don't end up in the jail. If they do come to jail, then we ought to do a risk assessment and at least give the judge more information about where this individual falls in terms of risk to reoffend or risk to, to, to uh, not appear. And then ultimately, the judge will have to make that decision. There's, there's no instrument that's going to guarantee an, an 100%, but it can give them much better information and I think they get simply with a standard uh, 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 bond amount by offense, which is not necessarily a great predictor of, of uh, criminal behavior. Are you aware of any um, communities that have done a good job with regard to pretrial justice? Well, there are, you know, there are systems. Uh, Kentucky, for example, has a model court system for many, many years. All of their counties have pretrial. Um, and, and, and so they, they, they created this statewide system. Uh, some other states, like, like Ohio, for example, were more of a county system. So it's really up to the county to decide if they're going to have pretrial or not. So I, I, I like the fact that, you know, in, in a state like Kentucky, they have a, a, a network across the state, people that are trained, they use an instrument. Um, and, and, and so I would start looking at those kind of jurisdictions if, if I were going to uh, try to move in that direction. Um, what is new research telling us about sex offenders in the criminal justice system? Is there any hope of rehabilitating these types of offenders? Uh, yeah, there's, you know, it's, it, again, sex offenders fall into the, like any others. There's high risk, there's low risk, moderate risk. Uh, we can sort them out pretty well. There's a number of assessment tools out there. Uh, there's evidence that treatment can reduce recidivism. I think most of that would say that they need treatment as well as supervision. Uh, you know, most of sex offenders are supervised in the community. I mean, we have to understand that. And, and so, you know, using our, our, the, the best knowledge we have means we sort them into risk levels. We make sure if they're, they need treatment, they're getting treatment. 
and we have supervision strategies that are monitoring them as well as trying to, to teach them how to, how to handle their risky situations. Uh, you know, again, what's the alternative? We, do we want untreated sex offenders? I mean, you know, the argument that, you know, that <clears throat> we should lock them all up, well, we can make that argument, but we know they're not all locked up. And, and, and so I think, it, you know, it's really an area that behooves us to, to, to follow, the, follow the research and the evidence. Um, in sensing offenders with mental illnesses, what should judges do to ensure the best outcomes for the community and the offender? Well, I think two things. I think they start with assessment, and, and, and by that I mean they assess they have a mental health assessment done, and they also make sure there's a, a good third generation or fourth generation risk and need assessment done because they need to identify those criminogenic risk factors that are driving that behavior. Uh, and, and so if there's someone who has mental health issues, they're going to need some help and some treatment for their mental health issues. They're also going to need somebody to help them work on those criminal genetic needs. And, and we're starting to see that model uh, <clears throat> more and more. Um, I, I know a friend of mine is a psychiatrist at the University of Rochester, and uh, he's done this work for many years. And, and, and he's, you know, he told me once, we used to get these, see these people in jails, we'd stabilize them, we'd get them out, and in six weeks they were all back again. And, and after he and I talked, he realized that we were, they really weren't working on these other criminogenic needs. And, and now he has a model where they try to bring both of that together. And I think if they can do that, they'll see much stronger effects than, than, than we have in the past. You've used the term criminogenic needs on a number of occasions during this uh, podcast. What do you mean by that term? Well, when we talk about kind of risk factors, uh, we think about, you know, something like criminal history is a risk factor. You know, if you've been in prison before, that's a risk factor. If you were a, a drug addict 10 years ago, that's a risk factor. The problem is I can't change it. And, and so criminogenic uh, uh, risk factors are dynamic risk factors, things that we can change. And so if you're currently using drugs, that's criminogenic. And the reason it's criminogenic is that it's highly, it's correlated with you getting into trouble. But I can, I can target it. I can change it. If you're in a gang, right, that's criminogenic. I can target it. I can try to change it. And so criminogenic are really those dynamic risk factors that are helping influence somebody's behavior. Um, Non-criminogenic risk factors can be static risk factors or they can be not, they can not be related to criminal behavior. And so there are non-criminogenic risk uh, or non-criminogenic factors like mental illness, like uh, things like physical conditioning, uh, anxiety, housing. These really aren't criminogenic. They, they, they may be barriers or they may be, in some cases, strengths, but they're not really related to criminal behavior very much. Is there any new research out there that you've found quite interesting that uh, you'll be following in the next five years, say? Uh, well, there's, there's, there's new research. There's certainly a lot of, I, I think where the field is going is data analytics. 
Uh, you know, we're in the age, starting the age of big data. Um, and, and so I know we're doing some work here. We have a crime science institute that's been doing work uh, looking, for example, at, at violence, now starting to look at the opioid problem. Uh, and we're just going to start applying that to, to corrections. So I think big data and, and our ability to look for things that we haven't been able to easily see before is, is something I'm keeping my eye on. Um, and, and I think it will affect our, our not only our risk assessments, but also probably our interventions uh, and how we and how we manage and supervise people. Um, the, the, those are some. That's probably the biggest area that I, I would see in the in, in the next few years. So, Professor Latessa, what question haven't I asked you that I should have asked you? Well, you know, one question that, you know, people often ask is about the use of professional discretion. You know, given given everything we know about risk assessment, you know, when is it appropriate for judges or others to kind of override or, or use their own professional discretion? And, and this is an act this is a question academics have studied as a general rule risk assessments the actuarial risk assessments do tend to be more accurate than than overrides not not a great deal but but somewhat but why do we allow professional discretion why is it important i, I think there's several reasons one that that people may resist the use of a tool that totally supplants professional judgment and experience, right? And we have a lot of people that have worked in this field a long time, and, and we want that, that experience to play into their decisions. There's also practical reasons, right? Could be political considerations or certain types of offenses, right? We, we, we may have some people that commit, um, you know, white collar criminals, for example, that 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 um, uh, may have no criminal history, may not score high on a risk assessment instrument, but given the, the, the violation of trust or, in some cases, the seriousness of the crime, that we override a risk assessment. And also, we have to remember there are gaps in, in assessment information. We don't always know everything, uh, and, and it's not perfect. And so I, I think the message I would say to judges is, yes, your discretion, your experience is important. If you're doing it all the time, then you don't trust the assessment. You don't trust the tool, and you're probably making you know as many bad decisions as good. On the other hand, uh, if you know, once you have all the information, a good risk assessment's done, whether it's a pretrial decision or a probation decision, now you factor in that that professional judgment and uh, 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 to help you make a decision. Are there any um, programs that are still in use today that surprise you because you know they're just not effective? Oh God, there's more to count, more than I can count. And, okay. and 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 I see the same thing, you know, some of the same things. I was just in uh uh I won't tell you where, but I just reviewed a, a probation department and and sure enough they're they're doing uh you know, drum circles. Uh you know, e even though there's you know, absolutely no evidence that these kind of things will have an effect. Um and, and so yes, I, I still see uh, many, many, many examples of programs that we do that 
um, where we have no evidence and, and never will have any evidence that he'll change behavior. I see. Uh, we any have other all kinds of examples of you know uh, you name it art therapy and just about everything else that you know that we do um, and again these aren't necessarily these are well intended people but you know they're, they're you know they're not following the evidence they clearly don't understand you know uh, the the major risk factors that are you know driving most of this behavior. And are you still seeing the use of of other types of um, services that are just you know are not going to help at all and and uh, are not uh, effective? Well, I, I think in that question, let me answer this way. I, I think there's also a difference between identifying the right target and hitting the target. So. You know, I, I see a lot of programs that focus on substance abuse, right? Well, that's an appropriate target, right? It's 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 criminal genic, it's correlated with, with criminal behavior, and so they've identified the appropriate target. The problem then becomes how do they go about trying to change that behavior? And that's where they'll fail. They'll 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 try to do it through lectures, through talk therapy, uh, through other techniques, through education. So they'll try to educate them about drugs, or they'll try to scare them out of their drug use, or they'll try to talk them out of their drug use. That these are not effective approaches that are going to have much effect. And and so many times I, I'll see a program that. Yes, they know they want to reduce substance abuse. The problem is the way they're going about it is not likely to have much effect. And and that's that that is a very common phenomenon in our field. Um I've also heard of a story where they've um sentenced a psychopath to counseling basically group therapy and that was uh not the best use of a service. Can you talk a little bit about that and and what your thoughts would be about that? Well, you know, psychopathy or, you know, what we would call antisocial personality disorder is the one major mental health diagnosis that is highly correlated with criminal conduct. No, in fact, it's probably the strongest single correlate, uh, and it encompasses a lot of different uh, 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 elements. Um, I think it's a label we have to be careful with. It's easy to label people uh, psychopaths, uh, but, but assuming that that this was clinically diagnosed, this person was high on in the psychopathy area. There's really not a lot of evidence that putting them in a in a in a group process is gonna is gonna reduce recidivism. In fact, there is some evidence that it may make them worse, in part because they, you know, if you think about a group and what goes on in a treatment group, people are talking about their 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 their, their uh, vulnerabilities, they're talking about the things they did and why they did them, and 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 one argument is that psychopaths then become uh, more adept at, at manipulating and using people. So um, I would say, and I've seen many groups I've gone to, especially in prisons where they'll, they'll run therapeutic communities, and I can almost 
easily identify the psychopaths in the group because they're kind of taking over and telling everybody what's wrong with them. Um, it's not, uh, you know, it's, it's not an effective approach with that, with that, with those individuals. I, I'm not a, you know, I'm not an expert in, in, in that area, but uh, as a general rule, I would not advise that they put these kind of folks into, into uh, those kind of treatment processes. Well, Professor Latessa, I want to thank you so much for participating on our podcast today. Says I appreciate everything you said. Is there anything else that you think the judges should know before we wrap it up today? No, but if I get like a hundred judges and want me to go to their counties, I'm going to blame you. <laughs> That's well. I guess you'll have to. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Thank you, Professor. All right, you take care. Thanks for joining us today. But before you go, remember you can find guest bios, links to the resources mentioned in the podcast, and over 150 other resources, including recorded webcasts, self-study courses, documents, bench cards, videos, and more at NJC On Demand, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If you haven't already logged in, go to judges.org today and look for the NJC On Demand button to take advantage of this great resource for judges. Judges.